Yeah, I kind of don't even want to talk about this movie with you. Why? I don't know. I just, I just, I, I have a feeling where this is going to go and I don't want it. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster from San Diego, California. And you are Cassidy Robinson, recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Today we are reviewing Thor Love and Thunder, the new Marvel film. And for the streaming homework, we're going to be talking about 1984's The Company of Wolves, which we watched on Tubi. But... Before we get into that, we have a sort of a pre-review segment that I wanted to bring up. So, Rob Zombie dropped the new Monsters trailer a few days ago. And it was, film Twitter was a buzz. There wasn't much going on, I suppose. I, I mean... It doesn't take much. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and this is was somewhat anticipated. This is his first non-R-rated, non-horror, gore-fest kind of movie. The, he's kind of venturing off into something a little more adjacent. And this definitely is part of his milieu, If you know, just as much as he's into Toby Hooper slasher films from the 70s and 80s, he's also into old 70s and 60s television and... Roadster car movies and tattoo shop paraphernalia. And And there's there's this thing with, you know, like spooky adjacent stuff, right? You know, like Elvira isn't scary, but a lot of, you know, if you were into horror in the 80s, you knew who she was. You were, you know, probably a fan. Right. Uh, If you were into monsters, you knew who the monsters were. You knew who the Addams Family was. Like... All of this stuff that was, you know, it, it was just a little weird. It was a little spooky. It was a little... It's just Altogether a little icky? Yes. That's the Adams Family, but yes. Yes. Um, and and even if you go back, look at like the old Marilyn Manson stuff, before he just went by Marilyn Manson, it was Marilyn Manson, the spooky kids, and their whole aesthetic was, you know, weird goth kids carrying around lunchboxes of Scooby-Doo and stuff like that. So they were mixing in a lot of, like, cartoony imagery, too, before they decided to become a full-on industrial goth rock band. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, like, geek chic, but a a very niche, like, form of it. Like, it it makes sense. Yeah, totally. So he dropped a trailer, and a lot of people had a lot of opinions about it. And I remember... Oh, I I mean... It looks like garbage. It looks like straight trash. I mean... Like, it, it looks so cheaply produced. I don't know. I I saw the first teaser, and I was like, oh, okay, okay. And then I saw the trailer, and I was like, oh, what? Did they, like, make this in Rob Zombie's backyard? Right. That is kind of what it looks like. But it, it I think my response is, I said, it looks like a 90s serial commercial. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And 
maybe that's what they're going for. And maybe the trailer is, is hiding the ball a little bit. Maybe there's going to be a, a point in the film that where things open up a little bit more and it's not all just on one soundstage. So I'm reserving, I I mean, I'm reserving a little judgment until the actual movie comes out because it could be marketing. Also not for nothing. I just think the whole thing would look better if it were black and white, but sure. Yeah. I I think, yeah, uh, I, I agree. I think that would probably hide a lot of the, the frayed edges that the trailer shows. I mean, I'm with you. I'm at least, curious to see what he does with it uh but i mean you know rob zombie isn't isn't a director who's gonna pull 200 million dollars for his movie Uh, not necessarily a lot of his movies kind of have a lower budget look and and when in the terms of horror i think that can have a bit of charm to it Mm -hmm. i don't know if I'm very curious to see how it applies to comedy because, you know, comedy and horror, like two of the things that you can usually make for pretty cheap. So, right. And a lot of his horror films do have a decent amount of comedy in them. And, you know, for all the complaints I have about Rob Zombie as a filmmaker, he's usually pretty dialed into his aesthetic. Yeah. That's not usually an issue. That's why I think there might be something a little bit tricky about. The trailer. I, I don't. I don't think we're seeing everything we're supposed to be seeing yet. Like maybe there'll be more trailers that reveal more later on. But well, and and you know, like you said uh, about it looking like a, a TV commercial, it could be a choice. It could be you yeah. know, like it, it's based on this old show, and he is he has been very vocal about wanting to make it as true to like the old show as possible. So. That might be a just a part of the movie. It might be, you know, I'm trying to recreate this as an episode of the show or, or whatever. So that that might be a part of it. Uh, right. Yeah, I right. I agree with you. I'm I'm reserving complete judgment. I just wasn't terribly impressed by the trailer. No. Yeah. I mean, if you just at face value, the trailer does very little to nothing for me. But I just want to see a little bit more before I completely write it off. But I did see somebody say something to the effect of he's taking from the aesthetic of the 90s Flintstones movie and that we should be excited about that. I can see that with the comparison to the Flintstones movie. Yeah, where the sets are really obvious and it's all very broad and and art directed and yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that old movie in theater, I'm old enough to have seen the Flintstones movie in theater. I actually rewatched it very recently, like uh, during the you know quarantine and all that, and it was fun. Yeah, where I wanted to take this conversation is back when I saw that. I remember I I went and watched it with my dad, and we had this conversation of, okay, when's the Jetsons movie now? Because you know <laughs> the Flintstones and the Jetsons were always shown side by side. Uh, yeah, both during Barbera, one's in the past, one's in the future. There was even a, a Jetsons meet the Flintstones crossover. Totally. Yeah. And they both were staples on Cartoon Network or um, what is the... Boomerang. Boomerang is, yeah, the, the new... all coming back. Yes. And, you know, at the time it was a little bit more difficult because I didn't know as many actors, but I haven't had this tried this thought experiment in a while. So I thought we might as well do it on the show. 
how would we cast the live action Jetsons movie today? And I have a list of characters here and we'll go through them one by one. Now, I want to start with some of the more ancillary characters, uh, largely because I think we're going to have the same answers and I'd be shocked if we didn't. But let's okay. start with uh, Mr. Spacely. This is George Jetson's boss. Who plays Mr. Spacely? Okay. Well, the, I, I actually think we might be more off than you think. Because uh, mm -hmm. the obvious answer is Danny DeVito, right? Yes. Uh, but I, I did not go with Danny DeVito. Uh, so for my Mr. Spacely, I cast Tony Shalhoub. Oh, okay. So you didn't go with the first... And most obvious thought. To me, this one is so obvious. It's it's as if they predicted Danny DeVito's acting career before he was a famous actor. Sure. Uh I'm well, I don't he know. He looks I mean, just like him, he sounds just like him. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to go I my cast in general is a little a little more second off. thought. Yeah. Danny DeVito is the like like I said, he's the obvious choice. He he does look like him. And Danny DeVito would crush it. I mean, Danny DeVito yeah. is one of the best character actors of multiple generations. He's fantastic. Yeah, the only but, thing that's kind of bringing him down now is he's getting up there in age. He only has he about maybe five to eight more years that he can really still do this role sure yeah and but when, when we do these fan castings mm -hmm. i always assume in my mind i'm always like okay if this movie were either being cast today to be like released in a year or two yeah uh, or if the movie was like coming out today that's always what i try to keep in mind right yeah yeah i'm not putting ads in variety right now in the hopes that yeah. we're going to get Danny DeVito in a theoretical Jetsons movie by the end of next year when we start filming. <laughs> yeah. But so I went with uh, Tony Shalhoub because yeah. I, I think he could, I think he's a, a great underused character actor mm -hmm. and would be really fun to watch as this, you know, this boss. I, I think he's a, a fantastic actor did great work in Monk. Does great character work in Mrs. Maisel. Mm -hmm. Okay, the next one. Again, shocked if we don't have the same answer, but maybe not. Rosie the Robot. I don't think we do. I So I was trying to think of, you know, a pretty contemporary cast. Originally, I was thinking Kate Berlanti. I don't even know if you know who she is. I don't know if I do. Well, you should. Is she a television uh, she, actor? She's one of the best sketch comedians working right now. What is she in? She, she had an episode of Netflix's The Characters. She she just appears in a lot of stuff as, you know, like a side character or whatever. Was she in Once she Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yes, she's the ticket taker. Yeah, okay. Then I, I vaguely know who she is. I'm looking at her credits now. She was also in Sorry to Bother You. Uh, she does a voice on BoJack. Yeah, she's usually yeah. a pretty small part. I think I've seen her around. Yes, given the opportunity, she could absolutely crush something like this. Sure. But I also, 
wonder if she's a little too much of an outsider, uh, a little too. Whoever so I, whoever's going to play on... Rosie the robot is going to be in either full makeup or just CGI'd over. So how big of a celebrity yeah, they are just... really doesn't matter. It's probably just a voice casting. So I actually settled on Tina Fey. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I think she can she can pull off sardonic really well. She has a really good voice. It just seems like, a, you know, a Tina Fey character to me. Okay. I said Rosie O'Donnell. Again, yeah. it's like they created a robot Rosie O'Donnell before there was a Rosie O'Donnell as a celebrity. I mean, she's literally named Rosie the Robot. I know. I, I, I mean, I, if I get, she didn't even get, get a call coming. for the job, she would be livid. Sure. Does she still act? What was the last thing she did? No, I don't think she does. I think she's keeping her schedule clear for the day they make a Jetsons movie. <laughs> well, that was part of my consideration in not casting her was I, I Too can't obvious. even think of, you know, like I'm not going to pick Rick Moranis for something because I know he's retired. And he was also Barney Rubble. <laughs> that's that's and she was Betty. <laughs> that's I didn't even think of that. I was just thinking of someone who I like know is retired. <laughs> I think that must have been subconscious. Must have been. Okay, so from here on out, I feel like we're having a real conversation now. Um, oh, fuck you! I mean, your choices I are feel good. Like, your I choices feel like are I'm good. playing the game. I feel like you're copping out. Go less You're off. going with if this movie was cast in, in 1998. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> um, the rest of my cast is much more contemporary, though. Okay. Uh, okay, so we'll, we'll just go with the main family members now. Here's George Jetson. <laughs> I don't know what your reaction is going to be to these. Uh, for my George Jetson, I'm casting Andy Samberg. Okay. I don't I feel like I don't he... love it, but I don't hate it either. I The more I thought about it, the more I kind of love it. To be clear, my interpretation of the Jetsons is maybe not exactly the humor would line up exactly like it would have with the Flintstones or something like that. I'm, th you know, again, I'm thinking of how can we make the Jetsons relevant to today's audience? And I think Andy Samberg is still pretty connected to that youthful comedy. Well, he's connected to the world of comedy for sure. Uh, yeah. And, you I, know, he's a sketch comedian, so he can do characters although i've never thought he was the strongest character actor uh he's he can mostly also just play, gets by on know, being genuinely a funny and nice guy but yeah but i think that works for george jetson i mean that's george jetson is you know as a character there's not a lot there he's just sort he's an of every man yeah yeah, and I feel like Andy Samberg can do that in a way that's funny and charming and modern. He has a bit of a voice, George Jetson. It's like, Rah! I don't care about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, again, me, it's I, the interpretation. Or, you know, are we do in my head, I'm thinking, you know, the comedic style very similar to to the the Flintstones movie of the nineties, where nah, it's just all I'm big sets and costumes and and uh, visual gags, but I would have that for sure. But I would also 
my interpretation would probably be a little more knowing, a little more like wink at the camera. It kind of has to at this point because exactly nobody younger than us knows what the Jetsons is really. Yeah. Uh, so you have to introduce it to a whole new audience. Well, you know, and I think there's there's some fun to be had with it's set in the future. Yeah, but it's a retro future, so it's like this past version of the future. So I think, unlike many other properties, it's kind of set up for some really fun like postmodern interpretation. Yeah, it's it's going for that like World's Fair Tomorrowlands vibe. Yeah. Have you ever seen that meme? People post it all the time on Twitter. It's, I've seen it on Reddit and stuff as well, where somebody will say something like, I don't know, if 4chan never existed, and then it sh- just shows this picture of this utopian uh, future with flying cars and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's this like hypothetical... Everything would be perfect if this one thing didn't happen kind of meme. Yes. Right. That would be how you have to kick this movie off because there's no way our actual future is going to be that cool. No, no. I mean, we are we are in full blown dystopia right now. <laughs> um, my choices, I, I, I really leaned into the everyman thing. So back in the 90s, when we were hypothetically thinking about this, me and my father, after watching coming home from the. Uh, Flintstones movie, my choice back then was Tom Hanks, because he was like the everyman of the 90s. Oh, he's way too old now. Now he's way too old. So I have Colin Hanks or Bill Hader. Those are my two choices. I think Bill Hader would kind of kill it. I think he he could definitely do the voice because he can do any voice. Yes. And uh, I think he'd be able to make it funny and broad at the same time. So he's really my first choice. And then if you can't afford Bill Hader, then you can get Colin Hanks. Yeah. I don't, I don't hate either of those. I I feel the same. I think (laughs) as you do about Andy Samberg, I think let's throw them all out and get Jason Sudeikis. Okay, sure. Since we're just naming that era of split the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think my thing with Bill Hader is, after Barry, he has such a dark edge that I I kind of wouldn't want to see him do a movie like this. I'd be a little like, ah, oh, buddy, like, what are you doing? <laughs> so I, I think that's my hesitation with him. Of course he would nail it. He's one of my favorite comedic actors working right now. Yeah. And I think Colin Hanks is fine. He's yeah. perfectly capable. Yeah. It, that would. I don't know if people are flooding the theaters to see the new Colin Hanks joint. No, but but like you said, he can he can play the everyman part well enough that if you have if you have good enough actors sort of orbiting his performance, uh, it can be a draw. And, and that isn't to say that he's a bad actor. It's no, he's that, fine. He's he's pretty yeah. good from everything yeah. I've seen him in. Okay, Jane, his wife. <laughs> I love that you're doing this, by the way. <laughs> Uh, why I always have to go first, but my choice for his wife is Catherine Hahn. See, I almost thought of her for Rosie if I was going to go more contemporary. I actually originally thought of her for Rosie, but then I was like, no, she's she'd be so good as Jane, and she'd yeah, be very I, good at either. I mean, 
But you don't want to. You don't want to see Catherine Hahn. Catherine Hahn's so physical. You don't want to just have her voice over some CGI thing or or some boxy robot. Exactly. Exactly. And I think you know a Catherine Hahn, Andy Samberg like thing. If they could dial in on on the humor together, which I think they absolutely could, would be just so much fun to watch. Yeah, I mean. Catherine Hahn is so good, she makes me like your Andy Sandberg pick more. Right? She like, sort of I, elevates I think, everything she's in. Yeah, and I think that she could tether his his dry humor in a in a really fun, interesting way. If if we just let Jane be as modern I, I was watching the like intro to get inspired and mm-hmm. the you know the part where he's dropping everybody off at school and then Judy at high school and then he drops off Jane and she like takes his whole fucking wallet and goes to the shopping mall I was just like oi like that's the type of humor back then women be shopping <laughs> right yeah and I was thinking you know let's let's have somebody who could let's play with that let's have somebody who can be fucking game and can make fun of that, and, and I just oh, you know, Catherine Hahn, she's incredible in everything. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good choice. She also did WandaVision very recently, and can pull off that modern sitcom thing. We saw her basically do this. Yes, uh, in various iterations over the course of that season. I have Leslie Mann. Um. Uh, she is yeah, not. I mean, I, she's not Catherine Hahn in the sense that I don't feel like Leslie Mann elevates everything she's in, but she's mm-hmm. she's a a very solid player, and I think you know against a Bill Hader, they would she would support that really well, and she yes, is funny I, in her own right when allowed to be. Absolutely, I I'm not Leslie Mann hating over here. I <laughs> yeah, I think she. I'm not again, I'm not mad at it, and I can see exactly where you're coming from, especially with that like late nineties casting. Uh-huh. Uh like she I think would play into that vibe perfectly. Yeah. Well, I mean I, I you know, I I'm I'm thinking of her now, largely because of who no, I, I, I know for what you're the, saying. Uh, I'm children, just saying but... I I think she could meet that style, is what I'm saying. Yeah. She used to rock the pixie haircut back in the Cable Guy days. Okay, I'm actually not going to go with, uh, with the theme of the theme song anymore because I, I want to save Elroy for last. Uh, Judy, the, the kids daughter. kids the hardest for me. Both the kids. The, uh, well, the kids are I, the hardest for sure, but I actually came up with a Judy I liked. Uh, I, I took I a little too. bit of thought. I did too. Uh, so I settled on Natalia Dyer. From Stranger Things. Is she in a newer season that I haven't watched, probably? No, she's been in it all. She's uh she's Will's older sister. She's the older sister. So it's um, a little I mean, it's I'm definitely typecasting here. Uh because again, she kind of plays this part in Stranger Things, just the spooky version of it. You know, instead of dealing with a future, she's dealing with monsters in Stranger Things. So in my version I'm kind of casting the kids as the voices of reason. The uh, I, I don't like the term straight man anymore, but the straight men, if you will, and letting 
the parents do the heavy comedic lifting. Okay. So that's kind of where I'm going at. I just want normal teenage girl. Well, right. That was always her thing is she's like a ditzy blonde um, valley girl kind of before that existed. Yeah. Unless you're talking about the the Jetsons movie, which is its own whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I watched the trailer for that, too. I, I was just kind of trying to remember what the Jetsons were, and I was like, it just unlocked this weird nostalgia flood in my brain, but... <laughs> yeah, well, I, I advise anybody, if you haven't watched it or haven't watched it in a while, seek out the Jetsons the movie, the animated film that was made in the 80s, or maybe it came out in around 1990 or so, but... Uh, it plays like a long episode of the Jetsons, except for there's all this 80s nostalgia stuff in it. It has nothing to do with the aesthetic of the original show. Like, there's this whole sequence where Judy meets a blue rock star at a concert, and then it just becomes like a Pat Benatar video for about three minutes. Doesn't it specifically parody the Take On Me video at one point? Yeah. Uh, and... And the Money for Nothing video and a lot of other things that were uh, came out on MTV around that time. Uh, also, one of many plots that's basically exactly Avatar. If you watch Jetsons the movie, the animated film, it is the plot of Avatar. My Judy is Sydney Sweeney from Euphoria. Oh, see, I'm the one person that hasn't watched Euphoria. So, in Euphoria... She is sort of the bimbo of the show. Her character gets flushed out more in the second season. To some people's chagrin, she other maybe more interesting characters kind of got written out a little bit in and her character got expanded in ways that people didn't like. But she's a very good actor and I think, you know, she started off in the first season as just being like the ditzy blonde teenager who uses sex to get the attention in school. And then in the second season, she kind of becomes a psychopath. So she has a wide range. And I think that she can be funny. And I think she can be really vulnerable. Uh, Not that a Jetsons movie necessarily needs that wide of a range, but uh, I think she's age appropriate. She's 24 years old playing a 17 year old in, in euphoria, but she almost kind of has like a modern day, Christina Applegate vibe. Okay. Christina Applegate uh, married with children era where they were definitely playing up to her bimbo-y qualities to sell skin for TV. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, sure. And if we were making this movie in the 90s, it would definitely have been Christina Applegate. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that, but we're not making this movie we're in not. the 90s. We're making Although this movie in Christina Applegate, not a terrible Jane, either. Yeah, that's true. She's also, a, you know, a great actress and, and a, a talented comedic actress. Yeah, she's been doing a lot recently, too. She had that show with, uh, with uh, what's-her-face from Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, Dead to Me. Yeah. Okay. Did You mentioned yours already. Yeah, the, the, the girl from Stranger Things. Yeah. We have to have a conversation about Elroy, because... Elroy is what always stumped me as a kid trying to figure it out, uh, largely because it's hard to find prepubescent actors who are talented comedically. But, you know, you could could throw out names like Jacob Tremblay or whatever. But 
none of that's going to work. And the reason why, and the reason why it was so hard to think about as a kid, Elroy is a freak of nature. <laughs> Elroy is nothing like the rest of the characters on the show. Maybe most similarly, like the dog that talks. Which would be Vin Diesel. I know we weren't casting that one, but... Uh, <laughs> Astra? Is that dog? the name of the dog? Yeah, um, yeah that'd be Vin yeah, I wasn't even really considering the doc. It's like, whatever, it's going to be some CGI bullshit. Who cares? Yeah, which is exactly um, why I want Vin Diesel. Just to do his brute thing. Right. Uh, I just, I remember the, the story about how he like recorded 800 takes of one version of him saying, I, I am, am Groot, Groot for the first Guardians of the yeah. Galaxy. For one, like one part of the movie, for one take. Mm. Yeah, I'm Insane. still amused that he goes to all of the press... Uh, junkets and stuff like that. Yeah. I uh, guess. Okay, so who was your Elroy? Who's your freak of nature, boy genius? He's, he's not a boy genius. He is not even a boy. He's If you look at the character design, they took Barney Rubble and shrunk him down more, put a little beanie hat on him, and had a full-grown adult man doing his voice as a kid. So he's like, hey, Dad, I'm Elroy. Hey. It's fucking weird and impossible to cast. So I'm just going to lean into it. I'm going to have him played by an adult and a very funny one. Elroy is going to be played by Tim Heidecker. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's so good. You fucking cracked this thing open. And made something, like, the least interesting character of the show interesting. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I literally just picked Jacob Tremblay, because I'm like, I don't know, just throw a fucking kid in there. Like, he, he's right, fine. But especially, especially with my vision for this movie and my cast already, uh. literally have Tim Heidecker... I'm stealing that. That's so fucking good. <laughs> That's so perfect. It makes the movie. I can see it already. And literally having Judy be like the only not comedy actor, I think is amazing. Oh my God. Like, I'm so mad that this isn't happening. There's still time. There's always time, Keith. Yes, it's perfect. Yeah, I it, once I figured Shut it out, I'm like, down. I stopped trying to think of kids because it's. I was like, why? Ca why can't? Why is this always so hard? Like, I remember back then, I was like thinking of like the the entire cast of Sandlot, and it's like, no, none of them. And now I know why. It's because he's not a kid. You're right. No, you 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 nailed it. Kudos, sir. Kudos. <laughs> I think we could maybe even retire this game now. Like. Well, we're out we of just, characters, so yes, we definitely can. I just mean, even from the podcast. <laughs> like, we're, you're never going to top that. God damn it. So good. <laughs> All right, let's start talking about Thor Love and Thunder. So this is the fourth standalone adventure for Thor in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm -hmm. uh, this sees him... After the events of Avengers Endgame, when he decided to go off uh, and have space adventures with the Guardians of the Galaxy, he's finding himself uh, a bit adrift, 
having a hard time sort of finding his purpose. His mojo. Uh, yeah, yeah. The the thing that made him Thor. Yeah, how Thor gets his groove back is basically what this movie is. And as he's adventuring in space, uh, simultaneously there is this new threat uh, to the cosmos. This character, uh, Gore, who was spurned by the gods, whose daughter died a horrible death of dehydration uh, in on this seemingly desert planet, despite his devotion to whatever god they worship. All of his people had been wiped out, and he finds this god mocking his people in this paradise, in this utopian paradise. Uh, conveniently enough, they slew the previous owner of this MacGuffin sword called the Necroblade, that allows him the power to kill gods. So he is going throughout the cosmos, slaughtering all the gods that he can think of and he can find. Thor picks up his trail, which leads him back to Earth, uh, to New Asgard, where Valkyrie is now the, the queen of the Asgardians, and where he discovers... Natalie Portman's character, Jane Foster, who has taken up the original Mjolnir hammer and gained the powers of Thor. Uh, little does he know that she did this as uh, hopefully to find a cure uh, for cancer uh, that she has that is is slowly killing her. So Gore, the God Butcher, shows up and kidnaps a bunch of these Asgardian children, and... Right, well, um, he's, he's essentially baiting whatever god wants to try and rescue them, specifically Thor, but whatever god wants to rescue them, so that he can kill more gods. Yes, and as he's doing this, he discovers that Thor, his new weapon, uh, Stormbreaker, which had the powers of the Bifrost Bridge, uh, can allow him to transport himself through space and time instantaneously. So if he can potentially reach this center of the universe, he can, uh, I guess, whoever makes it to the center of the universe gets to make one wish, and he can wish all the gods out of existence simultaneously. So Thor has to team up with Jane Foster and Valkyrie to try and stop him before he can kill everybody. Yes, that is the nuts and bolts of it. However, if you were to just describe the plot exactly the way that you just did, you would, I feel like you would not really be accurately describing the viewing experience of the movie just by its plot points. Because no, it, it is worth mentioning. This is uh, this is also Taika Waititi's second chance directing a Thor movie. He previously directed Thor Ragnarok, which mm -hmm. had a bunch of comedic elements, and this version is just full blown space comedy. Thor Ragnarok was 
it was funny, you know. Mm. It was a space adventure with comedy. This is a comedy with some space adventure. Yes, it's very comedy forward. With the exception yeah. of the Christian Bale Gore stuff, which almost feels like an entirely different movie. Yeah, I kind of don't even want to talk about this movie with you. Why? I don't know. I just, I just, I, I have a feeling where this is going to go, and I don't want it. <laughs> We're going there. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll just throw it out there. I wasn't crazy about it, but I also don't think that it's an affront to cinema. There's a lot of, there's a lot of very hot takes on this online especially and i feel like a lot of people are airing out their frustrations with the mcu in general uh on this movie this movie's kind of becoming a rallying point for everybody who's been an mcu naysayer to be like see see this is what you get right especially the people who always complain that there's a lot of one-liners and jokes and quips and and they're, they're progressively getting more jokey. And yes, I understand that. And Taika Waititi, you know, is not an action director originally or normally. You know, he comes from comedy. He comes mm -hmm. from low-budget comedy. Uh, what We Do in the Shadows, um, you know, he just came off of an uh, Oscar nomination with Jojo Rabbit, which is, you know, definitely has serious elements about it, but is largely a satire. And, you know, the world of the uh, Flight of the Concords and all that stuff. So his dry sense of comedic wit, in this one, he was given more freedom to sort of do what he wanted with this project than the average director yeah, who so steps into a who steps into a Marvel project to just make sure that everything is working on set and that the cameras are pointing at the right things. For the so for the first Thor movie, they got Kenneth Branagh, you know. Right. Which how many years ago was that now? Almost oh, maybe 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. I think Hard to believe. Didn't uh Avengers come out in 2012? Thor 1 or just Thor came out in 2011. So we're looking at yeah, 11 years since the first okay. Thor. Yeah, and it did fine. Uh, and then Thor Dark World came out, and a lot of people were like, ooh, uh-oh, this one's kind of a problem. It, it's really dark, it's really long, uh, there's not a lot of levity to it. There, it, it just kind of feels like a slog of a movie. Yeah, not a ton and of so personality. Yeah, and then they bring in Taika Waititi, who definitely revitalize this character by injecting it with a hundred percent personality. Oh yeah. Thor Ragnarok is still probably my favorite MCU movie. Like I, it's just so much fun to watch. It's so colorful. He, he nails the Jack Kirby aesthetic. It takes some really bold choices with killing a, a, a bunch of characters off. Mm -hmm. I would say it's important to note that Thor Ragnarok is on the other side of the release of Guardians of the Galaxy, which really opened up the yes. possibilities yeah, of what could happen in a Marvel movie. Yeah, so they learned that 
they can go comedic and not push people away, you know, as long as there's enough adventure, it's still, it's still a Marvel movie that just has a lot of jokes, it has a lot of personality, and it works with these characters that people aren't necessarily attached to. It works with the Guardians of the Galaxy because people were like, who the fuck are the Guardians of the Galaxy? It worked with Taika's first Thor movie because the first two Thor movies, like, nobody gave a shit about Thor. He was just sort of this super powerful guy that didn't have a lot going on. Nobody was attached to him other than Chris Hemsworth is super hot. So yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, I want to I, I want to defend Thor one a little bit more. I think it, it it's faded a lot in people's memory, especially because people sort of just see that first wave of Marvel films as stepping stones to the first Avengers film, and for a lot of it, it yeah. was. But I think that Thor and the first Iron Man were were a lot more concerned with being good as individual films, and that movie. The original Thor that Kenneth Branagh did had a lot of work to do in imagining, you know, the world building for Asgard and what that would look like in these characters and the tone. And, for sure. And also introduced one of the more uh, interesting and long-lasting villains of the entire MCU and Loki and that relationship between Loki and Thor, which I will say felt severely lacking in this well, film? Well, this is, this is the first Thor standalone without a Loki presence. Uh, right, and, and I'm glad... Off right, I'm glad the that they didn't universe. have to lean on that, but it also felt like there was, there was an interpersonal thing, you know, a foil for Thor, we'll say, because Gore, as great of a villain as he is, and I think that uh, Christian Bale is probably my favorite thing in this movie... And all of the work he's doing here is uh, really good and really rooted in character. And, you know, even though most people know him as Bruce Wayne Batman, he's much more suited to this type of work as an actor. For uh, sure. He's he's scary. He's menacing. Yeah, I would he's... actually say there's even moments where I was thinking to myself, this might be kind of scary for kids. Like, more so than anything in Multiverse, which got all that press about being violent um i think there's some of the just just through the presence and the makeup and and the acting of christian bale as that character he was you know it's somewhere it's kind of kind of dials it somewhere between voldemort and the emperor from star wars and i uh, think i think i would agree with you if he was in a different movie right my issues with the movie as a whole and i you know i don't think this is a really original take on, on Thor love and thunder is it feels tonally imbalanced and a little flippant. And sometimes the absurdity in the comedy doesn't land. Sometimes it does. Any scene with the screaming goats I found really funny. Same. Yeah. There was Um, some gag that that totally worked. The stuff on, on Asgard is like, or the new Asgard is basically being a tourist attraction and, and it looking like Disney, like a, like a park adventure in Disney. Eh, I didn't find much of that very funny or useful. Oh, I, I had no problem with that. I, oh, so, okay. I, I'm just going to lay my thoughts out here for you. So I didn't hate this movie. Um, I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. 
Uh-huh. I didn't enjoy it nearly as much as as Thor Ragnarok. Um, right. To you know, to me, this is kind of mid tier MCU. And that's what I would say too. I would place it squarely in the realm of like the Ant Man movies. Yeah, and I think it would have ranked higher if it hadn't had these kind of tonal imbalances. And my specific issue with the movie is this movie has no interest in being a superhero movie. Right. This movie has zero interest. The 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 plot, like the the plot, the the capital P L O T is so nonsensical. It's so, you know, we're going to introduce a MacGuffin after another MacGuffin after another MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. We have to go get this special weapon from Zeus to get to the thing before, so we can get the kids so that we can stop him before he reaches the center of the universe. But, and right. the movie is just so not interested in any of that. And no, in Thor Ragnarok, the concept was simple enough that they could they could make fun of this sort of hero's journey stuff, but still have him go on the hero's journey and not have it feel totally empty. Mm-hmm. This movie... It just does that thing where, oh, we have to get to the center of the universe before he does. Okay, now let's get back to another joke set, set up. Right. I mean, which, it's mostly it's mostly centered around comedic set pieces. Which is fine. I just think dial back the dial back that other stuff then. That's that's it's fine if you want to make fun of superhero movies. That's that's great. I, I I don't know. It just it felt like the other stuff would just get thrown out there. And then See, I don't feel like you're that far from where I'm at at all. You were like all protective and you thought I was going to come and just breathe fire and brimstone on this movie. And I think we're pretty <laughs> much really, saying the same thing. I really was expecting you to just have absolutely hated this movie. I don't absolutely uh, hate it. I will say there's maybe about. 25% of the movie that's pretty annoying. I do think that it it gets it gets a little that, too a little too over enamored with its quirkiness and its its own sense of humor that the movie's having more fun with its concepts than it's allowing the audience in to have fun with it. Like I feel yeah. like there's there's just something about the movie that feels a little bit like huh you chumps are paying to see this. And I don't love that, but I also kind of think that's bold. Um, I don't think that that is necessarily intentional. I, I, I think that might be... You, you use the words making fun. I would say, you know, yeah, as, yeah, funny, a, as funny and as, as charismatic as Thor Ragnarok was, there was nothing about it where I felt like there was a contempt for the material. Whereas in this, I do. In this, I, I feel I like view it as a contempt, so much as a, as like as like a contractual obligation. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, we'll set up the the thing, and uh, and that's fine. Um, but here's Thor wanting to fuck his hammer. Right. Which exactly. And talking I, to the hammer, and and or his his like, axe rather. Um, I feel like that bit was kind of played out much better in Thor Ragnarok. So here's my other issue with the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thor, as a character, has regressed in in a way that is a bummer to see because 
of all of like the main Avengers, I felt like he was the one that sort of had the most growth. You, yeah. you know, he was a god and and to see him lose and lose everything, I thought was really interesting and I liked how dark they let his story get and how depressed they let him get as a character and and I get that you know we don't want to see him we we don't want to keep seeing that we do want to allow the character to grow but this does the opposite of that this puts him right back where he was square one with sort of the first Thor and and that's you know I get that the cyclical nature of of superhero stories but it, it just felt like they didn't didn't really do anything to address that. Yeah, he's over it now. He worked out. He's good. Right. There's some the, the movie's so light and so and taking the the subject matters so flippantly that when you have things like a cancer subplot or child murder at stake or all of these, you know, higher-minded themes of acceptance of gods and you know where what god is in our life you know these theological questions they just don't even register um as in, in an emotional way at all because the movie could not care less i mean there's like a whole subplot going on here i mean a pretty driving emotional component of the film about him and jane and their relationship and their reuniting and you know this uh flashback sequence which might be the best stuff in the movie but it again just feels like a piece that's just sort of there for all of its gesturing towards these bigger themes and these bigger ideas all i think about when i walk away from the movie is screaming goats and guns and roses songs I think, see, that's that's what I'm saying I think is a little unfair. I, I think, I but I get what you're saying, yes, because the movie puts all of that stuff to the forefront. It puts the style up up to be the, the big takeaway. There's some great scenes in this still. Like you said, the, the flash, where they actually flush out Thor and Jane Foster's relationship mm-hmm. is so funny and and. You know, it's two characters that have been sort of forced into this romantic situation just be just to be holden to the comics, whereas they they never really had that much of a story. This fills in a lot of those blanks and I think is great. I actually think the stuff with Jane Foster having cancer, there's there's some quieter moments that I think are really good. There's this black and white sequence where they confront Gore on his planet that is stunning visually and kind of a big swing for a Marvel movie. I think there's a lot of this cool stuff in there. Oh, this movie's swinging all over the place. This there's the reasons I can't hate this movie, even though I don't think it works really. But the reasons I I I kind of stick up for it anyway is because it takes huge risks. It's full yeah. of personality. I would never call this boring. Um, no, unlike yeah. Thor The Dark World, which is still uh, the worst of the four and probably pretty low on the list of Marvel mo- movies in general for me. Same. There's something kind of culty about this. Like, I could see, even though everyone... Well, I don't know. It's getting mixed to positive reviews, generally speaking. But I could see, like, in 15, 20 years from now, people look at, like, oh, that's the that's the weird one. 
Like let's <laughs> yes. let's watch that one yeah. because like there's the people like most basically everyone will say that Thor Ragnarok is the best one or whatever, and then there's the the weirder kids who are going to gravitate towards this one for sure. And I think yeah, I I think that's kind of cool. I I don't know. I I agree with you. I I I, I mean I still enjoyed it. I still had fun in the theater. The you know what movie it reminded of me of huh. the most while I was watching it. What? And take it for what it's worth, because it's not a movie I love. But it, again, I would say all the same things I said about uh, Thor Love and Thunder just now. I was getting strong Wachowski's Speed Racer vibes from this. Uh, I never saw that, so I, I can't say barely. It, the whole movie but feels I, like I, it's on a sugar high. Yeah, yeah, I get that, and I get what you're saying. I think, so... A point I wanted to get to before I the conversation derails too much, yeah, uh, which it kind of already has. <laughs> I think a solution to kind of all of these problems would have been to have Jane Foster be the main character, to be the Thor of this movie, to be like I, I get where her story's going, mm-hmm. and I think if she had been up front from the get go, we wouldn't have had these issues with sort of the tonal imbalances because her story would be the driving force, not Thor sort of meandering through an adventure. He can still do that. He can still, you know, he can be the comedic foil, but Mm -hmm. pull him back, pull him back to more like, you know, an Avengers Endgame role or pull him back to a supporting character. And I think the movie reveal him in the third act or something like that. Yeah, I think suddenly the movie opens up in a way that it that it might not have before. Whereas in this version of the movie, we sort of have three main characters between Jane, Thor, and Gore. And I, I think Gore's presence is great. I think it works. Uh, but if we if we have, you know, sort of the two darker ends of this movie holding it together, then Thor can just be that sugar-coated ray of rainbow light that that carries us through it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think would be I think would be a cleaner movie. Yeah, I agree actually. I th- now that you say that it almost feels like there was a draft where that was the case and that they lost their nerve and they shoved might, I mean, Thor they, in there anyway. I mean, I don't know if that's have, what happened, but it 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 almost reads that way. It, it almost feels like they lost it in the edit to me yeah. is, is, you know, they're editing it and like, oh, well, let's play up the comedy more. We don't, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. This might be what they always wanted. Um, I have to say it was also very saddened to see Valkyrie pretty much evaporate as a character because I thought she was yeah. very interesting. Tessa Thompson as, as Valkyrie was very interesting and a welcome new presence in in the Thor universe in Ragnarok and here she pretty much it's her and uh what's the what's the uh, YTT's character's name the rock Org. guy mhm yeah Org. they're basically just become the C3PO R2D2 of this movie no i definitely agree yeah there's just so much going on in this movie already that there's just not really room to do much else with her mm-hmm. and you know, give her her own movie. Like, she's so fucking great. The character's interesting. They could do something with new Asgard, for sure, as a standalone thing. I, I think that's the solution there. 
you know, if, if she had been a cameo, mm-hmm. I think it would have been less of a bummer. But where this is kind of all we get of Valkyrie, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, she becomes so supportive. She's become the window dressing in the film, unfortunately. But, you know, it kind of goes back to what you were saying, where this movie has no interest in being a superhero film, really. This movie also has no interest in, I think, being cool. <laughs> you know, with the exception of the gore stuff, which is decidedly cool and metal. Everything else... Well, it's almost... I mean, it's almost making fun of cool, right? It, you, you got... Right. Or... You know, looking like fucking Kurt Russell from Big Trouble in Little China, like doing Van Damme splits and, you know, there's kind of a a send up of of macho cool culture in in some fun ways. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay, so maybe the movie's very power metal in that way. Like the whole movie's like a Dragon Force music video or something. But (laughs) yeah. I think if the movie actually wanted to pay these characters off, Valkyrie would have had more to do. Uh, you sure. know, Gore yeah. and and Thor would have played off of each other in more interesting ways. The relationship between Jane and Thor, even though it's maybe the, the strongest character moments in the film, are still sort of sold out for the jokes. Yeah, I, I I think for me, I was almost losing it with the movie at the sequence when they meet uh, Zeus and the big uh, round table with the gods. That's when I that's when I was like, okay, what are we doing here? And then then the third act really picks everything back up, and and I was kind of won me over by the end, but I was barely tethered along for a lot of it. Yeah. I kind of know what you mean. And it wasn't that I hated this sequence with Zeus. I, I do think it like goes on way too long. And it's never totally as funny as it thinks it is. Right. Uh, I, I don't mind, you know, kind of opening this, again, this version of the Marvel gods up even more to the universe. If there's Norse gods, sure, why can't there be other gods? But I kind of wanted to see, you know, Gore the God Butcher butcher some gods like i i think you know had had maybe he interrupted this round table scene and and you turn it into you know kind of a tense action sequence i think there's stuff there to have fun with and to play with but again uh, the movie does not want to be cool it's more concerned with being funny than cool yes yeah for sure and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't i yeah. mean that's that's, That's kind of where I'm at with it. I don't have to see it again, honestly. Um, but it's it's something to behold. It's very weird. It is weird. And I I tend to err on the side of weird more than than you know than the side of the Thor Dark Worlds. It right. Just it, I'd rather have a swing it and a miss. Pl- it's better that. Better a swing and a miss than to play it safe. And end up with a mid-boring movie. For sure. And and I think the reason this movie disappointed me is because I love Thor Ragnarok so much. And mm-hmm. it, it seems like that was just kind of, you know, pun intended, catching lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay. You know, it. it I, I should have maybe tempered my expectations a little more. 
you know, where, where as I also remember being a little middling on, I, I was a little cool on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 the first time I saw it. And, and then after you. a yeah. rewatch, I, I think I, in some ways, prefer it to the first one now. So I feel like I need to watch this one again, kind of knowing what it is. And, and maybe I'll appreciate some things more. Um, but yeah, it, it it's it's got issues. It's got some problems. If it was like a 10 episode animated what if saga, then it's perfectly fine for that. The my issue with it is that as a film to stand alone on its own, I don't know, it, it's just kind of effervescent. It just it just sort of like there's just there's nothing about it that feels substantive in any kind of way. I'm giving it a C plus. I'm going to give it okay. I don't even know if we're grading on a curve or whatever at this point. I'm going to give it a B minus. Okay. Yeah, I was kind of between the two when I was uh, writing the review for it. I I ultimately lean on the C because I feel like more of it doesn't work than does. But see, I think that's where we do. There's there's I like a like I said, there's sort of like a tank girl quality to it that I'm kind of down for. <laughs> like, yeah, like I, I there's something about the irreverence of it. It's it's chaotic. That, it, it, yeah, it's totally chaotic energy. Yeah, I and I think that's why I settle on maybe giving it a little higher grade. Is is <laughs> it is chaotic? It is, and and when it was funny, it was, like you said, the screaming goats literally did not fail to crack me up, and it happens a lot. Individual results may vary on your feelings on yeah. Thor: Love and Thunder. And it is, it does seem very mixed. And it, it also seems very love or hate, too. I mean, even though we're sort of splitting the difference and talking about the things we love and the things we hate, it, it seems like the general audience who views this will focus on one or the other. Yeah. It does seem to be the, the consensus. Um, let's talk about our streaming homework, The Company of Wolves. This was... Released in 1984, this is a English film directed by Neil Jordan. Uh, the director would later go on to make uh, The Crying Game, Interview with a Vampire, uh, Ondine. I believe he was the creative director or showrunner of The Borges. So this is sort of a retelling of Little Red Riding Hood where Angela Lansbury plays the grandmother. Uh, Sarah Patterson plays the granddaughter, Rosalie, or Red Riding Hood character. And through the majority of the film, we see her Angela Lansbury's character sort of retelling these myths or fables or legends of these different werewolf stories that involve, a lot of the time, these kind of cautionary tales about you know, meeting boys and what can happen in the woods with boys. Like it, it seems pretty clear that that the that the werewolf is very much a metaphor about uh, sort of the animalistic uh, sexuality. And we see all these examples. While there's this other werewolf story sort of happening in the background, this takes place like medieval times. Becomes eventually the traditional. Red Riding Hood story that we know, 
with this psychosexual overtone. This was pretty low budget, mm-hmm. uh, even for the time. And I, I think I would describe the tone and vibe of the movie or the look is hammer horror meets Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater with some art house ambitions. Yeah. A lot of familiar faces, uh, though. We have uh, David Warner, who plays uh, the father character in here. Uh, Stephen Ray, who shows up in uh, both The Crying Game and Interview with the Vampire, the, a major player in other Neil Jordan films. Fun little cameo by Terrence Stamp. Mm-hmm. What did you think? So, I lied to you. About what? I have definitely seen some of this movie before. I don't think I've seen the whole thing. Uh, But I'm pretty sure we watched kind of the main wolf stories in a folklore class I took. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, this is all about... Because this movie is very much about folklore. It's, It's very much about the grandmother telling these stories and showing a, a direct connection between the fairy tales we know and and how you know how we kind of got to know them how they might have been passed down to our ancestors and how they moved forward right um and the subtext of these stories You're like well, yeah, yeah why were and, people ter- telling werewolf stories in the first place or vampire stories or whatever they might be yeah and and the real world dangers that sort of paralleled them Mm-hmm. I think everything you said kind of nails it. I think it's a little boring, uh, a little dry. There's some moments of some pretty cool visuals, some pretty fucking whacked out stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, there's definitely an art house ambition here, which I appreciate. You know, they're... they're Mostly on a screenplay level, but yeah. Well, the, the camera focuses on some weird dreamlike imagery at times mm-hmm. it, yeah the framing device within the framing device was fucking stupid so what you left out is all of this is a dream a girl oh, right. having and has nothing to do with the actual story and there's kind of this weird dreamlike ending that i fucking hated and i don't know this movie felt long and it's only an hour and a half uh-huh yeah, it paced horrendously. I'll say it. There's no real narrative drive to it. And and, and it, because the movie's so centered around people telling stories, and so we have these stories within stories within stories. So, and we jump from one to another. It's almost like, it's almost put together like a, like a anthology film, but without those hard yeah. cuts to, okay, we're at this story now, we're at that story. Instead, they're sort of loosely connected, and they'll kind of return back to one and back and forth uh, you're, until you're, they tie into the into the overall narrative. Yeah. Um, but it, it it's a little messy overall on how it accomplishes that. Well, and I, I you know, we've seen an example of that type of movie working and that scare me it's where it is sure. an anthology yeah. film but it's all done through the talent of the the actors and through the and through 
you know, the, there's a, we did a whole podcast on it. Go listen to it. Yeah, and there, uh, were, there that, are a ton we, of horror anthology movies that came out in the 80s. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But to me, that is achieving the same kind of goals as this about anthology movies, but as as sort of oral tradition, as folklore. Mm-hmm. That That's the, why it, it popped in my head was this is... This is Granny telling all these stories, sort of. I don't know. Sometimes they blended into what was actually happening, but none of it was actually happening because it was a dream anyway. Some of it's kind of dumb. Some yeah, of it's kind of that, that, that's what I meant. There's there's sort of the ambition of of surrealism here in that you know I think they keep they keep going back to this line, um, the eye of the beholder, or or. What do, what do they keep saying? You, you have to see see it to believe it. Yeah, like that. Uh, that theme keeps popping up, and and I think there's there's something about what what Neil Jordan in the screenplay is trying to say is that these folk traditions are as real that they they essentially are real until you can prove otherwise. Yeah, and, yeah. It, there's definitely interesting stuff here. I mm. think I appreciated it. The first time I saw it, because we fast forwarded through a lot of stuff, I I I was remembering as we were watching it, like mm-hmm. there's the sequence where all the like bourgeois people get turned into wolves by the witch, right? In the and, the tent sequence, like a wedding, yeah, with, like the and foppish wigs and stuff. Yeah, that's actually it, probably on a visual level, I think the best stuff in the movie. Oh, I I don't even think on a visual level. I just think it's the most interesting stuff going on. It, mm. It's that one is very self-contained and, and, and clean that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I remember we fast forwarded through a bunch of like the filler stuff and right. which there is a thing, lot of. You know, yeah. And I get it. You know, red riding hood is a, in its shortest version is a very short story. So I get, you know, you got to stretch that out, but I don't know. I, I think it's just a lot of it was just kind of dry and not interesting. I mean, on a screenplay level, there's just no drive, and that's that's just a problem. And also editing, you know, between the two, the movie's just not moving. That is hard to fix with with the footage that we what we're seeing here. And maybe if Neil Jordan had the original negatives now he could go back and make a better movie out of what he had. I don't know. Yeah, and I'm fine with cheap-looking movies and movies that are clearly all on a soundstage. And, I mean, um, absolutely. And it's like going the for... Were, the werewolves were ooey and gooey. There's one transformation sequence that is really fucking gory and cool. The first one, I thought it started out really gory and cool and then got a little manimal towards the second half of that transformation. I didn't mind that, though. I was like, it starts off super gory and he's like ripping his skin off. And then, you know, I I get that it's on a budget, but I thought the wolf still looked interesting and mm-hmm. fun and, and, and cool. But yeah, just the rest of the movie didn't have that man ripping his own face off energy. Right. If you want more of that, uh, check out Nightbreed. But uh, there's this was a couple years after both uh, American Werewolf in London and oh. The Howling came out in 82. Oh, no. I didn't realize this was after. 
Yeah, a couple of years after. And I think at this point in time, everyone was trying to do their version of the change head or their version mm-hmm. of of the the next cool way to use prosthetics to show a werewolf transformation. And this is much and there's some- lower budget than I think even those movies were. Uh, well, and there's and to I mixed results, think- there sometimes I think it's better rather than try and keep everything in frame, which was the goal of John Landis and and mm. uh, Joe Dante. Uh, with those previous films, they wanted to do it in broad daylight or as much as much light as possible, keep it all in frame and just let the makeup do the job. And they had very, very talented artists to be able to do that. Uh, here, the I think it works a little bit better if there's more cuts and then come back to various stages in, in makeup. It, uh, it plays yeah, a little yeah. bit better when it's, when it's a little bit lost in sort of a kaleidoscopic uh, montage editing. Yeah. Like again, this, that scene with the bourgeois, it's pretty simple, mm-hmm. but most of it's cutaways and furry hands and stuff. I will say yeah, and the, distorted the, faces and things like that. The visual of like the wolf snout coming out of the guy's mouth is very cool. Yeah. Uh, that was their money so, shot. That was, yeah, you can I mean, tell why that's on the, on the poster. It definitely had, you know, I would say that the transformation sequences were good enough. Mm-hmm. It, you know, they were not the parts of the movie that I was tuning out of. No, I'll, you know, I'll take a, a silly uh, manimal change head sequence every day, all day over old British actors doing community theater <laughs> you know what i mean like you know what i'll take old Brit- uh, yes i do and i agree and i'll take old british actors doing community theater <laughs> over dumb cgi uninspired bullshit yeah yeah agreed i mean i i think this is what i would say overall about this film is it's not essential viewing at this point no. i i think it, it it doesn't age terribly terribly well But if you're looking at old werewolf movies from this time period, especially thinking of it in terms of, oh, this came out a couple years after Werewolf in London and Howling and everyone's, there's a little bit of a arms battle in the, in the uh, latex makeup world happening right now. It's interesting to look at for those reasons. And I think if you're looking at Neil Jordan's body of work, there is a through line here. But you can definitely see how interview from the interview with the vampire came from this. Right, yeah. And there's some sequences. He's very he's very theatrical. Mm-hmm. And there and the way that he lets actors uh deliver dialogue and, and keep as much of it in cut as possible. Uh which in this film I actually think is probably working against the film, but in later films works very, very well. Um uh, but yeah, I mean, even his 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 interest in folklore and and genre stuff as metaphor for human sexual desire. I mean, there's a direct through line from this right into uh, interview with a vampire later on. Dine, which is about uh, what are the Irish the Selkies? Oh, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. and that's one of the more recent films. 
Um, and he's done some different stuff in between. I mean, the crying game does not have anything like that, but I digress. It's an, it's more interesting than good. That's what I would say about it overall. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, I, I got a little bored and that shouldn't happen in a 90 minute movie, but it does. And <laughs> certainly can, but there's moments, you know, it, yeah. it, it would suck me back in. It's not terrible, uh, but I would non-essential viewing, I think, sums it up perfectly. Mm-hmm. So what will we be talking about the next time we uh, do the streaming homework? So for the next episode, we are going to be talking about the movie that everybody seems to be talking about. We are going to be talking about the Hindi Netflix smash summer hit RRR, Triple R. Mm-hmm. In fact, I believe it's still playing in some theaters because uh, this oh, came cool. out earlier this year. So if you're in a larger city, uh, if you're there are some theaters that are still showing RRR. So you might be able to catch it uh, on the big screen. And I've heard that is the way you should see it. However, that is not the way I will be seeing it. But yeah, it is yeah, also available on Netflix. But if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics we talked about on this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram, at mcguffinpod. Uh, please leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review over whatever podcast app you use to listen to us on. iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, we're on all of the things. Uh, you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. You can also read my reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal uh, by looking up Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid and my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Also, uh, make sure you're following Mockingbird Improv for updates on when I have my, when, you know, the various shows. But if you would like to see me perform, uh, check out Improv versus Stand Up. I'm not always on the cast list, but it's a good show, even if I'm not there. So check it out. Yes. If you happen to be in the Southern California area. Uh, yes. San Diego specifically. And are you going to be doing anything special for Comic-Con? I know that comes up next week uh, on your art account or anything like that. Uh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> for the past couple of years, I, I've done like a Comic-Con at home thing. Uh-huh. And that was, you know, kind of trying to make lemons out of lemonade. But Comic-Con from everything I've heard, is coming back and coming back big. So I, I don't think I'll have the time to focus on something like that. You know, we'll we'll see how it goes. Uh, first yeah. big Comic-Con since the pandemic. Uh, but uh, yeah, I won't be doing anything specific. I, I haven't been keeping up with Instagram lately anyway, so. Mm -hmm. Comic-Con, more like Omicron. And that's the show. <laughs> I'm not Lady Thor. My name is Mighty Thor. And if that's still too hard for you, you can call me Dr. Jane Foster. Bye. <laughs>